Well, last week we completed our, our 19-week study of the New Testament book of Philippians that we titled Embrace Joy. And uh, I hope that the series was of help and encouragement to those of you who have been here for either part of it or all of it. Three weeks from today, on November 29th, uh, we'll begin our Advent and Christmas series. Can you believe it? Wasn't it summer just yesterday? Um, but by the way, as of today, you have 46 shopping days until Christmas. And you're welcome. So in the interim, you know, we have this little window of three Sundays. And so the question is, what you know, what shall we do with them? And, and I thought long and hard about it. And I've decided that what I should do is to read you your rights. Um, you know, when you hear the word right, R-I-T-E, you might also think of the related word ritual and and maybe you don't, maybe you don't care, but uh, I think it's kind of important for what we're talking about today. What's the difference between a rite and a ritual? In the religious sense, a rite is a, a formal ceremonial act that's prescribed by or it's customary to a church or a denomination, uh, usually performed with some measure of soberness or solemnity. Uh, the word ritual points to the way in which a rite is carried out the prescribed procedure, which may include specific words that are spoken, uh, specific scriptures that are read, specific people that are designated to administer the rite or to participate in it and so forth. And you really know that a specific thing has become ritualized when you can say of it, well, we always do it, and we always do it this way. We always do it, we always do it. This way, you know, for a while now, I've been wanting to provide some direct teaching on the rights of the church, of which there are several, including membership, baptism, uh, communion, child dedication, marriage, and so forth. Um, But of course, we have just three Sundays, so I've decided to focus on just three rights of the church, namely membership, baptism, and communion. And uh, you might say, well, we're evangelicals. We don't use the word right, right? That, that's, that's, that's kind of language for another group of Christians. And, uh, but it is what it is. So this morning, I'd like to open God's word to you on the subject of church membership or what we at LifePoint call partnership. And I'll explain more on that just a little later. You know, it should come as no surprise uh, to anyone who is observing the social dynamics of our time that there are Christians who resist the prospect of a formal binding commitment to a local church. And I think it's important to acknowledge right up front that that resistance exists and maybe to explore some of the prominent reasons for it. And I just want to highlight three that I encounter quite frequently Three reasons for resistance to church membership. The one reason for resistance to church membership is, is the radical individualism that characterizes our society and, and really has made its way, uh, into the church. And what do I mean by that? At, at its root, individualism is a philosophy of life that, that elevates the interests and the autonomy of the individual above the interests of the family or the community or so some collective group of people. Uh, any sense of responsibility for it, any sense of accountability to it. 
So that when presented with the invitation to make a commitment that involves accountability to leadership of a church and submission to the people, others within the church, the individualist most often automatically declines. Another source of resistance to church membership is the anti-institutionalism that's so much a part of the spirit of our times. When I was a young man, and I'm going to date myself here, a recording artist named Joni Mitchell uh, wrote a song that became a hit. It was titled, My Old Man. And the chorus went like this. My old man, he's a singer in the park. He's a walker in the rain. He's a dancer in the dark. We don't need no piece of paper from the city hall keeping us tied and true. No, my old man keeping away my blues. And the, and the basic message of the song was that her old man, her, her significant other, was such a stellar guy that their love was so unique and powerful that for them the legal contract of formal marriage uh, was not at all required. It was superfluous. We don't need no piece of paper from the city hall. And one of the similar mantras of our time today is, I'm not into organized religion. Have any of you heard someone say that? I don't know where it began, but... It's always in those words. I'm, I'm not into organized religion, not realizing, I guess, that there has never actually been any other kind of religion that stood the test of time. The anti-institutionalist may go to church, maybe an attender, but he or she will never choose to, to formally affiliate, never choose to become a, a member of a church. They don't need no piece of paper. A third source of resistance to church membership is what's been labeled as retail or consumer Christianity. Uh, And the consumer Christian views the church as a provider of social networking, social events, social uh, relationships, religious entertainment, spiritual experiences, personal affirmation, personal consolation. Uh, And their focus is on the degree to, to which the church caters to their personal preferences, and, and their involvement is calculated on, on the basis of a personal return on investment. A consumer Christian may actually go so far as to becoming a member, but, but when their local church fails to deliver on expectations, they head down the street in search of another church that they hope finally will. Uh, most of the time, without any notice to anyone, they're just gone. So they're often referred to as church hoppers and church shoppers. And what's sad for for those who hold these attitudes is that their relationship to the local church will will always be merely tangential, never more than superficial to the life of the church. They'll never know the joy, the satisfaction, the the growth that comes from full engagement. Well, what does the Bible have to say about church membership? In the interest of full disclosure, I need to acknowledge that as far as I know, there is no chapter and verse in the Bible that commands church membership. I wish there was. Uh, there's not. You can search for it. You won't find it, I don't think. And and so some will say, see, see, it's it's not commanded in Scripture. So, so why even promote church membership? And uh, on that point alone, they, they have a point. <laughs> But my answer, and and what I want to persuade you of this morning, what I want to, I guess, 
lay out for you is that it is impossible to understand the the prescriptions and descriptions of the church in the New Testament without acknowledging that a radical commitment to a particular local church is the will of God and the expected norm for every believer. Now, I know there's a lot of blanks there. It's Emily Sidley's fault that we're doing blanks at all. Um, so I'll just uh, I'll pause and let you fill those in. It's impossible to understand the prescriptions and descriptions of the church in the New Testament without acknowledging that a radical commitment to a particular local church is the will of God and the expected norm for every believer. In other words, uh, to those who say, well, I don't need to be committed to a local church. I don't need no piece of paper. The Bible says God disagrees with you. And to get at this, I I want to show you some biblical and theological indications that that this is true, and then follow that with some practical indicators as well. The Apostle Paul said that to be a Christian is to be in Christ, in Christ. It's one of Paul's favorite phrases. It appears throughout his letters. I'll just point us to Ephesians 1, verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, so that when you trusted in Christ, when you experienced the regeneration, when you were born again, when you became a new person, all the ways that the the Bible describes that transformation that takes place in us when we trust in Christ and he gives us new life. When that took place, Paul wants us to know you were included in Christ at that moment. It's as if he took you from here, put you in Christ. And the entire New Testament is really all about being in Christ. And what I want you just to observe then is If to be a Christian is to be in Christ, then to be in Christ means also to be added to his church. Those who believed the message on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, were baptized and were added to the church. Beginning of verse verse 36 of chapter 2, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's speaking to a a Jewish audience there in Jerusalem. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. If you have your own Bible with you today, just Underline or circle those words, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word, underline that, 
received his word, were baptized, underline baptized, and there were added, underline added, that day about 3,000 souls. So notice this. They, they believed the message about Jesus. They repented. They were baptized. And they were added to the church. And as we look, as we read forward in the New Testament, uh, that pattern is just repeated over and over and over again. One of the notable instances of that was the Apostle Paul's experience when he met the risen, glorified Jesus on the road to Damascus. You can read this in chapter 9 of Acts. We read that he too believed and was baptized, but the church was afraid of him because of his recently terminated career as a professional persecutor of the church. The guy was a a religious terrorist. And it was awfully hard for the disciples after seeing and hearing of him, uh, arresting believers, having them put to death, putting them in prison. Uh, Hard for them to believe his story of conversion. But when he was finally, uh, but but he was finally added to the church when a man named Barnabas confirmed the authenticity of Paul's conversion and, and advocated for his acceptance into the church. And I'm not going to take the time to read that, but again, you can read it in Acts chapter 9. It's rather lengthy. But as a footnote, just it's worth observing, I think, that here that there's a vetting process that's evident in the decision-making of the apostles in Jerusalem that began when Paul was baptized by a man named Ananias in Damascus. And then Paul came up to uh, Jerusalem and was questioned by the apostles. And then Barnabas, this man whose name was Son of Encouragement, and he, he lived up to that name. It might have been a nickname, actually. His first name was Joseph. We know that. Uh, Barnabas, Son of Encouragement. Barnabas served as a witness to the authenticity of Paul's conversion and his transformation. And he was then added to the church. So Christians in the early church uh, saw to it that there was no doubt about who was in and who was out. Who was an authentic Christian and who was a counterfeit Christian. Who was pretending and who was real. Let's go then to 1 Corinthians 12 and and Paul's use of the metaphor of a human body to describe the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 18 and 27, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of of it. See, if you're a Christian, if you've personally trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and your justification before God, then you are in Christ and God has placed you in the body, which is his church. No exceptions. To act otherwise is, is to act in a manner that's contrary to and inconsistent with your new identity and your new nature. Now, Realistically, can you be a Christian uh, without being vitally connected and involved in a local church? Yeah, probably you can. But only in the same way that, that I can cut off my hand and nail it to the wall. 
It's still a hand. But because it's severed from my body, it it no longer experiences its vital connection with the body, uh, nor will it serve its intended function in the body. It will shrivel and wither away, and so will you. And it will handicap the ongoing life of the body from which it came in which it was intended to serve. And so will you, if you choose to be aloof from the church. You see, from the moment you became a believer in Jesus, God placed you in the body. He did that. It wasn't your choice. It wasn't, oh, you're a Christian now. Would you like to be a part of the church? It's a package deal. He made you a part of the church, and your identity and purpose in life can no longer be understood apart from the church. There are other metaphors of the church in the New Testament that help us to kind of dial into what the church should be all about, and actually there are many, and they only make sense, all of them, only make sense as we come together in a radical, practical commitment and connection to each other. We we just looked at the body metaphor briefly, but let's look briefly at, at three more. In John 10, the flock of God, for example. The uh, Bible calls us sheep over and over again. It's rather insulting. Um, but uh, I just would observe with you here that, that one sheep doesn't make a flock, right? I mean, one sheep all by itself out on a hillside somewhere, does not make a flock. It it actually makes a meal for a wolf. Um, one sheep doesn't make a flock. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, there's the metaphor of God's building. That we're, And Paul said this in actually several of his letters, that we're, we're like living stones being built together into a, a dwelling where God lives by his Spirit. And I would just point out to you with regard to that metaphor, one brick doesn't make a wall. It's just a dead brick. <laughs> and then there's the, the metaphor of the household of faith in Galatians 6.10. And again, I would suggest to you, one child doesn't make a family. One child makes an orphan. And finally, consider the relationship of Jesus Christ to the church. Listen to what Paul said about that relationship in Ephesians chapter 5. There there are lots of passages that speak to the love and the the relationship of Christ to the church. He said to his his disciples, for example, that he he would build his church. But listen to what Paul said about that relationship in Ephesians chapter 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself... Help me, Jesus. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, these verses appear in Ephesians 5 where Paul's talking about marriage as a metaphor of the relationship between Christ and the church. And 
the culture of the day would have understood very clearly what Paul was describing, this preparation of the bride. Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for the one who would be his bride. Now, if Christ values the church that highly, cherishes the church, cleanses the church, how can we who claim to be his disciples defend a decision to live as if the church doesn't really matter by by resisting or rejecting the commitment symbolized by church membership. Christ loved the church. He, He loves you individually, but he placed you in the church. He loves the church. He intends for you to be a part of his church. The end of the book of Revelation is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And and who's the bride? It's not individuals. It's the church. You know, we've all heard people say things like, uh, oh, I do church on my own, in in my own way, in my own time. But but here's the newsflash. Doing church is is neither watching your favorite preacher on TV, nor, nor listening on the radio, nor a merely impersonal online experience, nor can it be experienced on a river or on a mountaintop. Nothing can substitute for real engagement with real people in the real family of God. That's, that's the way God designed it. There's no getting away from it. Let's look uh, then at some practical indicators from the word that, that God intends us to be committed to the local church. And let's just begin with this, that every church named in the New Testament, every church to whom the apostles wrote, was regarded as a cohesive, organized community of believers in a particular place with particular leaders in an identifiable congregation that was fulfilling the mission of Christ in a particular city or a particular region. In fact, most of the letters bear the name of the city in which that church existed. Uh, Paul, at the end of some of his letters, greets individuals that, that he knows are in the church over and over in those letters. See, see, the New Testament really has no category for uncommitted Christians, unconnected Christians. There are no believers in the New Testament who are not associated with a local church. Every one of them. Well, you can say, well, what about Paul and his missionary team? Yeah, they they traveled. They were missionaries. They were itinerant preachers, evangelists, and they were leading people to Christ and planting churches and then building those churches up. Notice Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And and this follows the, the, the passage I read earlier when they were They repented, they believed, they were baptized, and they were added to the church. The very next verse, Acts 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves. Those 3,000 that were added to the church on the day of Pentecost, plus those who were already following Jesus prior to that, together devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They devoted themselves. It shouldn't surprise us, actually, that the first attitude recognized in the very first church was active Devotion to a common life in a common community in Christ that involved practical service and personal sacrifice. You don't see a hint in this passage of any believer having a casual, lackadaisical attitude toward their engagement in the community of believers. Later on, we see that the apostles appointed leaders in all the churches, and and there's that answer to the anti-institutionalists. Every local church had an organizational structure. The apostles appointed leaders in all the churches, and the commands regarding the responsibilities of leaders to the flock that's under their care, and the commands regarding the responsibilities of individual believers to their leaders and to one another again, make no sense apart from the understanding and the expectation of a committed, accountable church membership. In Acts 20, verse 28, Paul's speaking to the leaders, the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained. Again, here's this high value he obtained with his own blood. So will you notice with me that phrase in all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers? Just hold that thought for a moment and go to 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And notice there the phrase, the flock of God that is among you. And come and call to mind the one I asked you to remember, all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Both of these phrases point to a defined flock, a defined group of people. So here's a question. How how can elders know who the flock is for which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers apart from some, some sense of commitment made by the membership? We live in a geographically mobile society. Consumer Christianity is alive and well. People are moving in and out of the church all of the time. 
when you make a formal commitment to membership in a local church, you are identifying yourselves to the leadership and saying to them, I'm in. I'm a part of your flock. I'm under your care. Notice also this command in Hebrews 13 to believers, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I really hate this verse. (laughs) Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. See, there's a day coming when we as pastors and elders are going to stand before God and give an account for you. It's not fair, but there it is. And again, we have to ask, uh, which leaders are we to submit to? Which leaders are you to submit to? The answer is clear. The leaders referenced here are leaders of local churches. You're not called to submit to the leaders down the street or, you know, in every other church in town. You're called to submit to the leaders of your church. So we need to answer some questions that, like, what local church are you a part of? Are you part of a local church? Which one? To whose flock do you belong? Who's your shepherd? Whom has God appointed as your overseer to keep watch over your soul? Who will give an account for you before the Lord? See, I think that these questions lie at the heart of the significance of church membership. I haven't always felt this way. I I was at one time kind of in the anti-institutionalist camp. Eh, it doesn't matter. I don't need no piece of paper. I'm not there anymore. See, if you you can't or won't answer these questions, then, then I can say on the basis of God's word that you are not living a biblical Christian life. It's that clear. And I wonder if you've ever seriously considered the question of, of who pastors and elders are, are actually responsible for. You see, because here's what I believe. Pastors and elders are not responsible to shepherd anyone who is unwilling to make a meaningful commitment to the local church that they lead. It's the community that matters. It's, it's, it's the committed body. They're, they're not responsible for those who shuffle in and out of the church without any point of accountability. See, and those, those who leave a church without saying goodbye, <laughs> without any, any point of, okay, we're, we're leaving your church and now we're going to that church, or we're leaving town and we're going to find a church in another place. Um, it's just mind-boggling to me. Why should a pastor or elder invest time and resources in you or feel that he should be regarded as accountable for you if you're casual about your commitment to the church? When you commit to church membership, you are saying to the pastors and elders, I'm in. 
I'm placing myself willingly under your spiritual oversight. I will obey you. I will submit to you, to your leadership, your discipline, without arguing, without complaining, without resisting, so that your leadership in my life will be a source of joy to you. That's the spirit of Hebrews thirteen seventeen. And when you commit to church membership, you're also saying to the rest of the church family, the rest of the body, the rest of the flock, I'm in. You can count on me to devote myself to this body of believers with all its warts and blemishes and to invest my gifts and talents and other resources in service to contribute to its health and vitality. And the church isn't always a wonderful place to be, right? People get hurt in churches, but people get hurt in every relationship. Someone once said that uh, the church is a lot like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the storm on the outside, you couldn't handle the stench on the inside. Um, but such, such it is. We are who we are. We're, we're broken sinners who are hurting, bleeding all over the place, making a mess. The church is messy. But it's messy because you're a mess. You bring your mess into the church and you share it with others and they with you. So I said I would, well, I guess I would just say I'm going to stop right there because I could yammer on and, and bore you to tears, but there's so much more. I mean, the, the, the evidence is overwhelming. But I said I would tell you why we use the word partnership rather than membership at LifePoint. In the study of Philippians that we just concluded, we saw the way that Paul valued the partnership that he enjoyed with the believers in the local church in the city of Philippi. Philippians 1, 3 through 6, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Partnership in the gospel. That, that there's, I don't think there's any better expression for what a church member ought to be, a partner in the gospel. That, that we have received the gospel. It's the gospel that has trans- transformed our lives. We've believed it. We've, we've received it. We are proclaiming it and we're doing that together. Partnership in the gospel. By using the word partner, we're not saying that there's anything wrong with the word member. It's it's clearly a biblical word. It it appears prominently in Paul's teaching on the church as the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians. But partner is also a biblical word. And, and we've chosen it uh, because we feel that in our time, the times in which we live, it 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 more accurately describes the relationship into which the Holy Spirit calls us and leads us in the church. Several years ago, there was a credit card company who used the slogan, membership has its benefits. And that's kind of the way we've been encultured to think about membership in lots of things. The membership is about privileges, that it's about benefits. But in any joint venture, partners make a mutual investment. They accept mutual risk. They experience mutual blessings. Sometimes they experience mutual loss. 
But one thing is true of partners, and that is that they aren't spectators. They have skin in the game. And for that reason, we we ask those who choose to become partners to make a few fundamental commitments that are contained in something that we call the partnership promise. If you don't like the word promise, you can substitute covenant, maybe because that sounds more biblical and it also means promise. (laughs) You're free to attend LifePoint Church without ever committing to the promise. You can come and you can sit in a chair and we will treat you nice. But if LifePoint is your church, we hope that God will lead you to take the step of becoming a partner. The LifePoint Partnership Promise uh, you can find at mylpcoly.com forward slash next steps. And it goes like this. Having received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, having been baptized as a public declaration of that decision, being in agreement with the mission, vision, values, and doctrine of LifePoint Church, and being led by the Holy Spirit, I am choosing to become a partner of LifePoint Church. In doing so, I commit myself to Jesus Christ, to the leaders, and to others in the LifePoint family to do the following. One, I will protect the unity of my church. I will do that by acting in love toward others, by refusing to gossip, by proactively pursuing reconciliation when I am in conflict with others in the body, and by following the leaders. Second, I will share the responsibility of my church, and I'll do that by praying for its growth and health, by inviting the unchurched to attend, and by warmly and sincerely welcoming guests. Third, I will serve the ministry of my church, and I'll do that by identifying and investing my gifts and other abilities in responsible service by proactively pursuing growth and increased effectiveness in my ministry, and by cultivating a servant's heart. Fourth, I will support the witness of my church by attending church on Sundays consistently, by participating faithfully in a life group or other small group within the church, by living a godly life, by giving generously and obediently. Well, you might say this morning, I'd like to become a LifePoint Church partner. What do I do next? Well, let me just re- reiterate, at, at LifePoint, a partner is a person who is trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, who has gone public with their faith by being baptized in water, who's investing in their spiritual gifts and personal resources in advancing the mission and vision of LifePoint Church, and who has been affirmed for partnership by the elders of the church. And again, you can go to mylpcoli.com forward slash next steps and read carefully through that. Uh, read what we believe, uh, which is our doctrinal statement, and consider whether you're in agreement with what we believe and teach. Because if you're going to move into a, a role of teaching or leading or spiritual influence, then, then we would like to know that you are aligned with our doctrine Secondly, thoughtfully review our mission, vision, and values. Again, that's at mylpcoe.com. Consider whether you're personally able to embrace these things as your own. 
and, and, and invest with others in advancing this mission. Third, if you've not gone public with your faith in Christ uh, through baptism since you believed in him, then just let the pastors or elders know that you'd like to take that step and, and we'll schedule a baptism as soon as possible. Uh, we are tentatively, and we'll put that in quotation marks, we are we are tentatively scheduled for a baptismal service here at LifePoint on the second Sunday in January. Uh, we felt like we'd like to put you in a bucket of water on the coldest day of the year. Um, but but uh, that's that's when we're planning to do it, is uh, the second Sunday. And I, I don't remember what that date is. Is that the 11th, 9th? It's the second Sunday in January. <laughs> Fourth, give active consideration, if you not haven't done that already, to where you'll commit to serve in the ministry of the church. We ask you, if you're going to become a partner, to, to actually do that and to, to commit yourself to a, an identifiable ministry of the church. Fifth, we want, to, want you to identify a life group that you will join. Now, a little bit challenging right now during COVID because some of our groups, most of our groups are not meeting normally. Um, but... Life groups are, are one of the key ways that we shepherd people here at LifePoint, and we, we want to know that you're in a group where you're uh, growing and contributing and, 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 and uh, being held accountable in your own life. And then finally, submit the completed partnership application to one of the pastors or elders. That's that piece of paper. You, you'll be contacted to meet with, uh, with an elder to share your story with them of how you came to faith in Jesus. And then the elder who meets with you to hear your story uh, will, in turn, either recommend your admission into partnership to the other elders, or uh, he will suggest steps for additional growth toward that goal. So here's something that I've decided, and the pastors and elders are hearing this for the first time right now. Uh, so if you hear them gasp, you'll know why. But um, I'm going to ask them... Uh, each of them to be involved in calling uh, each of you in the coming weeks to invite you to apply to become a LifePoint partner. Uh, the purpose of the call will not be to twist arms or to apply guilt in any way, manipulation, but uh, we're going to be taking some new steps as pastors and elders to improve our effectiveness in shepherding the flock here at LifePoint. And, and what we want to know is whether you are a part of the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made us overseers. And then we will be accountable for you. Let me conclude with this, that the church... Well, let me mention one other way. And Evan pointed this out to me between services. On the back of this green uh, card in your program this morning... Uh, that says next steps on the back of that. Um, it says, I'm interested in, and there's a blank there called other. And if you would just put partnership on that, that'll be another way that will indicate to us that you would like to pursue this. Um, there's a box there that says attending the next partnership class. Uh, we don't have an active class right now, but uh, if you'll fill that in, um, and, and drop that in the box before you leave. That will be helpful to us. Let, let me conclude with this. Church membership or partnership, I believe, is foundational to our witness in the world. You, you may ask, uh, how is it possible that simply becoming a partner, becoming a member of a church, will effectively advance the mission of the church? 
And I could give you another long answer, but but I'll offer just this simple one. And it's this, that in a low-commitment world, a high-commitment church makes a powerful statement. In a low-commitment world, a high-commitment church makes a powerful statement. And really, a high-commitment church ought to be the norm by biblical standards. I hope you've understood that this morning. It shouldn't be the exception. It should be the norm. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I've said this to you before, I'll say it again. Jesus is saying to us, saying to his disciples, saying to the church, that the world has the right to judge the authenticity of our claim to be followers of Jesus Christ on this one criteria, which is whether or not there is a tangible, observable, radical love in the church. And I would submit to you this morning that becoming a church partner, becoming a church member, is a way of loving each other. It's a way of loving each other. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would take these things and uh, apply them to our hearts this morning as you intend. That your Holy Spirit would, would take that which has been spoken from your word and apply it appropriately and according to the need of each life this morning. Lord, we want to be individuals that are pleasing to you. We want to be a church that's pleasing to you. We want to be a church that fulfills our mission and our purpose in the world. So we commit this to you and commit ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen.